about what God has in store for us as a church family this year. I hope you've had an opportunity to find um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I would just like uh, to read this passage and uh, invite you to follow along in your copy of God's Word as we read verses 17 through the end of the chapter, verse 34 there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be re- may be recognized. But when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourself, ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat it at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. As Paul launches into a new section here, we're still part of a broader section uh, dealing with worship. Paul is going to talk, be talking about worship through the end of chapter 14, and the worship gathering. So we're still part of that broader section that we started last week, but now he's talking about their celebration of the Lord's table. And he starts off immediately with some concerns about the Lord's table. He starts out with some concerns about the Lord's table. That on the, I put on the screen accidentally chapter 10. We are still in chapter 11. Um, Paul, Paul lists right off the bat that he's like, he's like, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Like, I've said some nice things to you, but this I'm not happy about. Uh, Paul is, is coming after uh, uh, them for, for their abuse, for their disregard for this sacred opportunity to gather together and celebrate the Lord Jesus, the Lord's table. And he lists several things. He says, first of all, there are divisions. He says in verse 18, for in this place you come together as a church, I hear there's division among you. They were split, there were factions, there were, there were divided along party lines, there were cliques. And those things have no place among the people of God. 
It's interesting, though, that God was still working through and in the midst of that division. I don't know if you noticed it in verse 19, but he says, For there must be factions among you. That doesn't make any sense, Paul. You have problems with the factions. Why do you say there must be factions? Well, God was even working through their disobedience because he goes on to say, In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So even the, in their disobedience, the factions, the, the separations, the divisions were causing, so to speak, the, the dross to rise to the top. The, the, the true believers were standing out, and those who were in the midst who were not true followers of Christ, it was, it was becoming apparent by the way that they lived and the way they acted. He says, furthermore, in verse 20, they were not genuinely eating the Lord's Supper. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. Whatever you guys are eating, whatever you guys are doing with this food, it's not the Lord's Supper. Like they had so distorted it, they had so changed it, they, had so, they were in so much sin in this matter that Paul is like, you guys are eating something, but it's, it's not the body and bread of the Lord. It's not the body and the, the blood of the Lord. Paul is serious here. And he goes on to say in verse 21 uh, that they weren't eating together. And, and people were being excluded from the table. He says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. Now, a little background information will help make sense of this, this verse. To remember that in Corinth, and in, in fact in most of the churches at this point, they're meeting in houses and in homes. And so here, in, specifically in Corinth, you had, you had and we, we said this long ago, I think the very first Sunday, that, that there, were, there were some serious class divisions in Corinth. There were very, very wealthy people, and then there were those who were slaves that would, that would be just in, in working themselves to the bone all day long. And so they couldn't come to a church gathering unless it was really early in the morning or really late at night. You see, remember, they didn't work, they didn't work, uh, they didn't have five days week at weeks like we do in, in, in our Western culture. They didn't have Sundays off. So when they gathered, it typically was really early in the morning to help accommodate those who were working or really late in the evening. And what they did is they shared a meal together. And, and the, the communion or the Lord's table was, was, came out of or was a part of that meal. Just like Jesus and his disciples there at the last supper. They were sharing a meal and that communion celebration came out of or was a component of that meal. And so what was happening here is that some of the wealthy who could freely come and go throughout their day. They weren't as tied down to work. They were getting there earlier. And, uh, and furthermore, they had the, the, the houses, the homes, even the nicer homes at that, that point. They had like a main seating area, but it could only accommodate usually nine or ten. And so those wealthier people were getting that good full meal, probably with, with a table service from the servants. And then, then those who had been working or the slaves would come, come rolling in a little later, and, and they were Everybody else was already finishing up with their meal, and these often were poor people. They didn't have anything to eat, and it wasn't being shared by the wealthier people. A lot of times they had been eating and drinking long enough that they were already wasted. And he says, many of you are, one goes hungry at the end of verse 21, and another gets drunk. You have some people who are starving, their bellies are rumbling, they can hardly focus on the, on the worship service because they're so hungry. And you got other people who are like, you know, pass out drunk from eating and drinking for several hours before the, the gathering took place. You can see how there were major, major issues here. And uh, verse 21 goes on to tell us that some had nothing to eat. There were just all kinds of true concerns about the Lord's table. So that prompts Paul 
to move into some teaching about the Lord's table. That's the second thing we want to see here in in, uh, chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, that Paul wants to provide some corrective instruction to help them understand. Like, he doesn't want to just leave it like, you guys are bad, you're doing it all wrong, and then just move on. No, no, no. He, he, he points out the error, but he also wants to point out the truth, show them where they need to be and, and, and how the table needs to be celebrated, how Jesus' name could be honored. And so he makes it clear in verse 23 that he received this teaching from Jesus himself. And what he explains harkens back to what we read about in the Gospels in that upper room the night before Jesus went to his crucifixion. We see here, Paul explains that Jesus, his meal wasn't an exclusive meal, but it was a meal that he participated in with his disciples. It was intimate. It was inviting. It wasn't pushing people away. It wasn't indulgent. It wasn't self-centered. Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians understand that the focus needed to be Jesus Christ as they broke bread and as they drank the wine together. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about what they wanted. It wasn't about having a party. It was about Jesus. And they had gotten lost. They'd lost their way. As believers, it's easy to do that. We can lose our way. We can take our eyes off of Jesus Christ. This has come up now several weeks in a row. There's so much in this world that can distract us. There's so much even in our hearts that can draw us away from a true, heartfelt, Christ-centered worship. And Paul is calling the Corinthians back to Jesus. There are different views in the church regarding communion, and I don't, I don't want to belabor this, but I just want to put this out here just by way of understanding that, that with regards to the significance, um, the Catholic Church holds a view uh, known as tra- transubstantiation. They believe that the substance of the bread and wine literally change into the substance of Jesus' body and blood so that when you come to the table, you're literally eating his flesh and literally drinking his blood. And Jesus, and, the, and, the, and they take Jesus' words uh, from John 6, eat my flesh, drink my blood. We have to understand the, that Jesus frequently spoke in, with pictures. He also called himself a door. In John chapter 10, we don't believe that he's literally a door. He also called himself a vine in John chapter 15, but he's not a literal vine. And so when we're talking about drinking uh, his blood and eating his body, we're seeing that which represents his body and blood, not that which is actually his body and blood. If you take out a globe, and uh, if I had a globe up here and I pointed to Michigan on the globe, I'm not literally saying that's Michigan. We all know that Michigan is a piece of actual land, not a piece of plastic on a globe. But what that does is that represents Michigan. And that's what we're saying here, that the elements, the bread, and in our case, the juice, represents the body and the blood of Jesus. 
But during the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther came along, and along with his concerns about the Catholic Church, one of them was this view of the Lord's table. But he didn't modify it significantly, only slightly. He rejected the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, but he, uh, he insisted on taking the phrase, this is my body, in some sense, still a literal statement. He concluded that the bread actually be, uh, does not become the physical body of Christ, but that the physical body of Christ is present, in, in, uh, in his words, in, with, and under the bread of the Lord's Supper. Well, during the Reformation, uh, uh, a man by the name of Zwingli came along and he said, no, 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 it's none of those things. It's simply a memorial. We're simply there to just remember what Jesus did. And another reformer, John Calvin, said, no, I think it's still more than a memorial. There's still, yes, we're going to see here, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But there's more to it than that. He said, there's a spiritual presence that takes place. In contrast to Luther, Calvin and other reformers saw communion as a means of grace, that Christ was present through the Holy Spirit, not actually in the elements themselves, but present through the Spirit of God. One writer says, today most Protestants would say that in addition to the fact that the bread and wine symbolize the body and blood of Christ, that Christ is also spiritually present in a special way as we partake of the bread and the wine. Indeed, Jesus promised to be present whenever believers gathered to worship. And if he is especially present when Christians gather to worship, we would expect that he will be present in some special way at the Lord's table. And that's what I believe is more rooted in Scripture, and we'll see here in a moment why. Those are just a little summary of some of the views on communion, but more importantly, I want to ask here, what does the table say to us? What is, what is being communicated through this sacred institution? A couple of years ago, we talked about this. We said it's not simply a tradition. We're not just simply doing this here because it's the first Sunday of the month, and that's what we do around here. It's not simply a ritual that we go through. There is purpose behind the Lord's table. And the first, first aspect of that, the first thing that we see in this passage, is that it is a reminder. It is a reminder. He says uh, in verse 25, For as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. He also said it in verse 24, regarding the body, and in verse 25, regarding the blood. This is a calling to mind. This word means you're hearkening back to something that has happened and you're choosing to dwell on it. You're thinking about it. You're reminiscing, as it were. Sometimes we do this at family gatherings or at certain celebrations. We'll think back to the good old days. I, I got a phone call from my mom last night and she brought up a high school classmate that I hadn't thought about in, well, I graduated about 23 years. I hadn't thought about him in 23 years. Uh, I, I had totally forgot about, about this guy. He was a class uh, great ahead of me. And uh, she informed me she saw his mom yesterday at a, at a party in a family gathering. And, and she said, did you know that he is a missionary in China? And I said, are you kidding me? Like, no. I mean, I, and, I, and I started, the more I began to talk to her and began to think, uh, I remember having some good conversations about the Lord with him in high school. He's a real quiet guy, but loved Jesus. And it was exciting to hear what God's doing in his life. And we reminisced a little bit. Well, well, when we come to the table, we're doing that with regards to the work of Christ. We're stepping back and we're reflecting. We're spending extra time thinking about who he is. The table is a place of reminder. The Lord's table remind us, reminds us the blood of Jesus Christ was more than sufficient to pay the price for our sins. 
The Lord's table reminds us our sins have been completely paid for by the blood of Christ. The Lord's table reminds me that I am specifically and uniquely loved by Almighty God. Do you know that? If you've forgotten, the table is here to remind you this morning that you are loved by God. The Lord's table reminds us of the heavenly banquet awaiting for us at our Lord's return. You see, it's not just a reminder for looking backwards. It's also a reminder for the present of what Jesus' present ministry is for us. And it's a reminder of the future of what awaits for us in the presence of God. It takes us to the past. It brings us to the present and to the future. The Lord's table reminds us of the unity of God's people. That we're here to partake together. That Jesus' prayer that we would be one is to be lived out and answered as we gather together around the table to be sure we experience individual blessings. But the privilege of the Lord's table together is that we draw together in unity under the cross of Christ, bound together by the love that he gives us and that we can show one another through his Holy Spirit. There's more we could say there, but I want to talk about a couple others. The second reason that we celebrate the table here, is that we're coming to have a spiritual feast. We're coming to celebrate a spiritual feast. I, I have, speaking of family gatherings, I have great memories of family gatherings and the um, food was always central. Uh, many of you have similar experiences and I was sharing with someone about my grandmother's cooking, and especially her baking abilities the other day. Uh, my grandmother could bake like nobody else, and so we knew that when we had Thanksgiving or somebody's birthday or Christmas time, uh, there was going to be no shortage of food. Like, that was a, that was a, I think it was like a, one of the deadly sins, maybe like the eighth deadly sin, like to run out of food at a family gathering. Like, nobody wanted that, and, um, but especially we knew that we were going to be hitting the pies real hard when it came to uh, my grandmother's cooking and my mom's. And, and so uh, we had just great memories celebrated around the table. Uh, and none of us, none of us ever walked away hungry. We always played a football game when our cousins would get together. And we always had to decide either to play it before the, the meal or like about four hours after the meal. Because there was no way anyone was playing it within a short while after the meal. We were just stuffed. We, we came away uh, full. Well, in the same way the Lord's table is is given to us to spiritually nourish our hearts and souls. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it on the screen here. But in John chapter 6, as Jesus was talking about the passage we referenced earlier, he said this, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Now I do think that Jesus is speaking spiritually there. But I think there's a sense in which 
he also is looking forward to the Lord's table. And I, I don't, I admit, I don't fully understand this or how this works. But as we partake of the Lord's table, there is a sense in which God is, is filling us, not physically, not literally, but spiritually filling our hearts and souls. There is a spiritual nourishment that is, it can only be explained by it being a supernatural thing as we come together around the Lord's table. God allows us in these precious gatherings to celebrate a spiritual feast. Thirdly, as we celebrate the table, there is a participation. There is a participation. This is another one of those mysteries. Jesus had said, take, eat, this is my body. He was inviting us in. Here, come, come, take. He was welcoming us to the table. He was inviting us and welcoming us to partake of himself. Again, you don't have to flip over there, but it may just be a, a page away in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you remember a few weeks ago when we looked at this passage, I said we're going to come back to it when we get to the section on communion. So here we are. In verses 16 and 17 of chapter 10, remember the context was, was Paul challenging the believers uh, away from eating meat that had been offered to idols because in many of their ceremonies they were entering into a participation with idols in idolatry because of coming to these gatherings and eating this meat. And he, in that point, likened it to, in the same way that you participate in the Lord's table, so too you participate in the demon's table when you have these meals. And so this is what he said about the Lord's table. He said, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and for we all partake of the one bread. Now, for many years, uh, with regards to communion, I held Zwingli's view, that it was simply a memorial, that it's just like, we're just simply taking time to reflect on and think about Jesus when we come together here. There's nothing special that takes place, there's nothing spiritual that takes place, other than what happens in my heart as I worship Jesus as I'm remembering what he's done. But I, I've, come, I've come to think, believe that that's not scriptural, that's not the full picture, and this passage is largely the reason why. In some way, when we take the cup and break the bread, we participate in the body of Christ. Again, as I said on the last point, I do not fully understand this. I cannot articulate the ins and outs of what this means. Somehow at the Lord's table, there is a unique fellowship shared among God's people with God's Son. It's not just this way, it's not just horizontal, and it's not just vertical. It's both. It's not like going to a football game or a big party, and you're with a bunch of people, and you're celebrating, and you're excited. It's more than that. There is a communal participation in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual transaction. This is why Calvin and many other theologians speak of communion as a means of grace. As we reach for the cup and as we reach for the bread, we are symbolically reaching for Jesus. Who he is 
and all he accomplished through his death and resurrection. And we are holding him close to our chest and we are saying, I am his and he is mine. And that's why Paul was ticked off (laughs) because everybody was disregarding that. And he says, I do not commend you for the way that you come to the table. Not only were they being disobedient to God, but they were missing a spiritual blessing. They weren't taking the fullness of Christ and drawing him close and letting him draw them close and being reassured and overwhelmed with his love and grace for them, which was poured out at the cross that day on Calvary. The final one I want to mention, number four, is that the Lord's table is a proclamation. The Lord's table is a proclamation. He says in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We don't just remember. We're not just spiritually nourished. We're not just uh, participating mystically in the body of Christ, but we're also uh, proclaiming through our actions something. You know, uh, uh, there's, that, there's that phrase we have in the English language, actions speak louder than words. Well, we're supposed to proclaim the gospel. We're supposed to use our words to proclaim the gospel. In fact, this, this word is the same Greek word that's used throughout the New Testament. In, in speaking, it usually is, it's often translated announce or sometimes even preach. It's usually it is a verbal proclamation. But here, Paul is saying, listen, your actions are doing the talking in this case. And as you come together and celebrate the Lord's table, and take of the wine and eat of the bread. You're making a proclamation. And what you're doing is you're proclaiming the Lord's death. To those all around. To one another. For those of us who already know, we're reminding ourselves. And for unbelievers who might be in the midst, they're seeing the gospel lived out in a tangible way as we partake of the Lord's table. Wayne Grudem says, I proclaim again and again that my sins were part of the cause of Jesus' suffering and death. In this way, sorrow, joy, thanksgiving, and deep love for Christ are richly intermingled in the beauty of the Lord's Supper. Yes, 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 we must proclaim outside these walls. There's lots of other scriptures that talk about that. But here, here, we're called to proclaim it amongst ourselves. You see, it's There's a reason that Jesus said to do this as a reminder. I I don't care how old you are. I don't care how sharp your memory skills are, whether you're at that stage of life where they're beginning to fade, or you have a mind like a steel trap, and you can memorize things. You have a photographic memory. I I don't care how great your memory is. We all need to be reminded of the gospel. Because when it comes to the gospel, we so often have short-term memory loss. Day in and day out, I need the gospel. I forget. I'm a pastor. I've been studying these things since I could. I, I, I let out my first cries. My parents have been bringing me to church. I've, I've heard the gospel now for 41 years. And still I forget. I forget that Jesus loves me unconditionally. I think about the ways that I screw up during the week. I think about my sins. 
I think about my circumstances, and oh, I can get discouraged. I can get down. I can begin to wander away from the cross. And I need to be reminded of a Savior whose unconditional love didn't just start and stop in that three-day period of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But his ongoing, never ceasing, never abating, oh, how we need to be reminded. And through the proclamation of the Lord's table, we're helping remind one another. I wish I could quit there. Part of me wishes I could quit there, but there's a reason that the next verses are here. Because we would be remiss if we ignored Paul's warning about the Lord's table. Paul made it clear that the Corinthians' disobedience over the table was no small matter. And this passage here takes a somber turn. He says in verse uh, verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. He's not just saying this detached from what's going on. He says this for a purpose, for a reason, because they were eating, many of them were eating in an unworthy manner. Through their exclusivism, through their flippancy, uh, through engaging in sin and not, not addressing their sin and just going ahead and charging full on with the Lord's table. For some it had become a ritual, for some it had become an occasion to party. And he says, listen, you are guilty. You are guilty of abusing the table of Jesus Christ. You are eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. So his corrective, what he says, uh, well, before I get to that, I wrote here that their carelessness meant that they were eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. That word, that phrase means it's unfitting or unsuitable. It was a way... Uh, it was morally out of keeping with the nature and design of the ordinance. It's not the way that it was intended to be celebrated. And so the offense was that they were guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. They were going to be held accountable for their actions. And so Paul goes on to say that many or even had, had become sick and had died. Now, this, this could take us down a whole other rabbit trail about suffering and why, why we get sick or why things happen in our life. We need to be careful not to build a theology that says, okay, every time you're sick, that means you've got sin in your life. That, that's what happened in John chapter 9. If you go back and read that sometime, they, they saw a blind man. The disciples saw a blind man. They actually asked Jesus, who sinned? They just assumed all suffering was because of sin. They said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, nobody, this this." sickness is not the result of anybody's sin. This man is blind so that God can show a mighty work, which I'm about to do here in a second, which speaks to God's sovereignty in suffering. And there's a whole other sermon there. But in this case, there were people who had gotten ill, physically sick, because of their persistent, unrepentant sin. And Paul says, some of you have died because of this. I can't imagine as they're reading that for the first time. Often these letters were read, read in a group. I just can't imagine what that would have felt like hearing that for the first time. Cousin Vinny just died last week, and 
He was like one of the biggest partiers when we gathered together for worship. Nobody knew why he died. The guy was only 27. Are you kidding me? I mean, it must, must have been shocking for the Corinthians to hear that. We need to understand that sin is serious, my brothers and sisters. Prolonged, unrepentant sin has consequences. God does not give us the option of coming to the table while we are harboring sin in our hearts. How dare we think that we can indulge in sin and rebellion throughout the week and then saunter into worship with God's people and come forward to receive the body and blood of Jesus as if nothing's wrong. How dare we? How dare we nurse a grudge against someone, hold bitterness in our hearts, and think we can come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner? How dare we give little thought to Jesus Monday through Saturday and think we can come to the table in a worthy manner? How dare we spend hours clicking around on pornography throughout the week without a care in the world and think that we can come to the table in a worthy manner? How dare we live day in and day out in a rude and harsh manner with our spouse and kids and think there's nothing to it and think that we can come and participate in the Lord's table? One of the theologians, though I've never met him personally, who has taught me much about theology a man by the name of D.A. Carson, and I heard him tell a story um, about one of his favorite teachers when he was at seminary. Um, the man, uh, <coughs> D.A. Carson's uh, teacher here, had been a, a pastor many years prior out in the bush in a remote place in Canada back in the 1930s. And he was in a small town, and, and sort of everybody in the town came to this church, and he was a young, single pastor at the time, and he came to this church, and it was just a mixture of anybody who was anybody, and especially leaders in the community uh, were welcomed in, and it, it sort of didn't matter the way you lived or the way you acted. He said it was just, it was shot through with greed and materialism. There was sexual promiscuity that was undealt with, one-upmanship one un, um, one and even cruelty. It was much like the Corinthian church. And he felt all alone, like any time he tried to deal with a, a sin issue, there were others who with social standing that swept in and defended those he was trying to rebuke or confront. There was no opportunity for church discipline. Sin was just ignored and left unchecked. And he felt alone as a pastor. He didn't know what to do. And so he decided to begin just getting down on his knees. And he said every day for three months, he cast himself before the Lord on the floor of his study and just wept and cried out to God. He said, Lord, take me out of this place. I'm not big enough to handle this. Send in someone who can handle the kind of situation this church is in. I, I can't do it. It's not right. This is blasphemous. Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, men and women coming to the table while they're living in open sin. It's a terrible witness to the community and a dishonor to your holy name, God. Take me out of here. Send a Paul, someone who's someone strong and powerful, someone who's articulate, someone who can get through to these people, someone who's wise and bold. You have to clean up your church. And for three months he did that. He cried out before God. And you know what happened? In the next three months, in a congregation of just over 200, he had 34 healings. I'm not making this up. In the next year, he baptized 200 people. 
when a church of God's people tolerates and ignores sin, God's hand of blessing will be removed. And sometimes, as was happening in Corinth and in this gentleman's church, God's hand of cursing comes. And he'll purge his church. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. If we're flipping about sin as we come to the table, we are dishonoring God and sinning. So hear me say this, and I say this in love. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, the table that we're about to celebrate here in a few moments is not for you. Not yet. We long to see you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But don't heap up more condemnation to yourself by coming to the table. And for those of you who are my brothers and sisters, I say to you, if you're living in unrepentant sin, don't come to the table this morning. Deal with your sin first. Address your sin first. He doesn't say we're excluded forever. No, no, no. Remember, 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, if it's something between you and the Lord, you can repent of that here even this morning before you come to the table and, and come with him, come with a clean conscience and a clean heart. He says in verse 32, he says, but when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the word. God, God, God disciplines us. He chastens us because he loves us. And he doesn't want us to be condemned with the world. He longs to see us corrected and brought away from our erring ways. As we finish with the conclusion about the Lord's table, we re are reminded then that the Lord's table is a joyful celebration, but it's also a time of, of holy sobriety, of seriousness. We dare not come to the table flippantly. We certainly dare not come when we harbor sin in our hearts. But we come as a body, to preach the gospel to one another, to reorient our hearts and minds around the cross. I'll finish with a quote from one of my favorites, Charles Spurgeon. He says, oh, I love this phrase, oh, that I could have the cross painted on my eyeballs. I love that. He didn't know about contacts where you could actually do that now you could look in the mirror and see that right that i could not see anything except through the medium of my savior's passion oh jesus set thyself as a seal upon my hand and as a signet upon my arm and let me wear the pledge forever where it is conspicuous before my soul's eye happy is that christian who can say i scarcely need that memorial but i am not such a one and I fear me, my brethren, that the most of us need to be reminded by that bread and that wine that Jesus died. And need to be reminded by the eating and drinking of the same that he died for us. He goes on to say, I shall not care what you say and what you feel if I can get each believer here just to think over this thought and to remember it. The Lord of glory loved me and gave himself 
for me. That head which is now crowned with glory was once crowned with thorns and crowned with thorns for me. He whom all heaven adores, who sits upon the loftiest throne in heaven, once did hang upon, hang upon the cross in agony extreme for me, for me. I want to give you a moment to just bow your heads and talk to Jesus and thank him for what he has done. Father, I don't, I don't have more words to add to what your scripture has revealed to us today in those words of Spurgeon. The Lord of glory has given himself for me and for all those who turn to him in forgiveness. Lord God, if, if your spirit of if your Holy Spirit is, is convicting us in these moments, may we turn from our sin and repent and turn to the Lord, our Savior, who forgives. May we be able to come here as a body and partake of the table. Call to remembrance the things that Jesus has done. Call to remembrance the things that he is doing. And call to remembrance the table that we will all gather around one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb hearts be lifted up in worship to the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we want to invite you to the table if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, first of all, and if your heart is clear before him, I want to invite you to celebrate with us. If, you, if you've never done so, you just come to the front and grab others, a little cup with a, a cracker and a cup of juice. Um, at the table, there's also uh, 